Hello, wild wanderers. Well, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about bees, and then I gave you a break from stinging insects to take a hike. But as promised, today we're back to talking about another group of spicy insects, wasps. Now, I mentioned wasps briefly at the end of the bee episode, and I said that wasps get a lot of hate, and I think that's mostly because some wasps sting, and we, as humans, have a hard time finding value in anything that's not pretty or that we find annoying or that has the ability to hurt us, like bees and snakes and spiders and wolves. I mean, how dare they, right? But just like any of the other things that we find scary or inconvenient or that can hurt us in some way, wasps not only have their place in the ecosystem, there are some really cool things about them that you probably don't know. And really, for the record, there are about 30,000 species of wasp worldwide and about 4,000 species in the United States. And only 30 of those 4,000, so less than 1%, are actually capable of stinging you, and in most cases, they rarely do. Many wasps are pollinators, helping to keep our flowering plants, well, flowering. And many species of wasp are what we call parasitoid, meaning that they lay their eggs on the larvae of other insects. When those eggs hatch, the wasp larvae consume whatever larvae they were laid on. I mean, yeah, it sounds kind of like a horror movie, but it helps control the population of the parasitized insects, making wasps both pollinator and pest control. So let's take a closer look at a few species of wasp, and we'll see if I can take a little bit of the sting out of them. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Now, even though this episode is about wasps, I'm going to start with a word about a cousin to the wasp, hornets. Now, I used to think that the difference between a wasp and a hornet was mainly one of color. Wasps were black and yellow striped, and hornets were primarily black. But that isn't the case. The truth is, what I thought of as a hornet, and was once stung several times by as a child, were hornets in name only, the bald-faced hornet, which technically is not a true hornet, but a species of yellow jacket. In fact, no hornet species are native to North America. European hornets, which are black and yellow, were first identified in the U.S. in 1840. They've since become widespread throughout the eastern United States and spread west through the lower Midwestern states as far as Arkansas. But they were not established in northern Illinois when I was growing up, so until recently, living here in Virginia, I had never actually seen a real hornet. Now, No doubt you heard the term murder hornet floating around during the adventure that was the year 2020. This was a reference to the northern giant hornet, the largest hornet in the world, which, incidentally, is also black and yellow. The moniker murder hornet makes for a scary headline, but it's overly sensationalistic in my opinion. It's primarily a reference to the fact that these hornets can devastate honeybee colonies. While worrying about an invasion of serial killer hornets took our minds off the pandemic for a few minutes, and while an invasive species is always something to be concerned about, so far the northern giant hornet has remained confined to a few places in northwestern Washington state and British Columbia, and are primarily dangerous to honeybees. So with that out of the way, let's talk about wasps. 
I would venture to guess that there's two types of wasps that people are most familiar with, yellow jackets and paper wasps, because these wasps live in colonies which make them both more visible and sometimes more problematic depending on where they've set up shop. These wasps are what's called eusocial, like honeybees or bumblebees. Eusociality is defined by cooperative brood care, including the care of offspring from other individuals, overlapping generations within a colony of adults, and a division of labor into reproductive and non-reproductive groups. Much like the social species of bees, yellow jackets live in colonies with a queen, female workers, and male drones. At their peak in midsummer, these colonies average between 4 and 5,000 individuals. In the colder parts of their range, just like bumblebees, only newly hatched mated queens overwinter. The rest of the colony, including the founding queen, dies off. However, in places where the winters are mild, the nest may persist over the winter, continuing to grow. These colonies can become very large and have multiple egg-laying queens and nearly 100,000 adult wasps. Some species of yellow jacket prefer to nest underground. They seek out protected places like abandoned rodent burrows or under tree stumps. But many build their nests in trees, shrubs, or other protected places, like inside man-made structures. Nests are built from wood fibers that they chew into a paper-like pulp. About the size of a basketball, a yellow jacket nest is completely enclosed except for a small entrance at the bottom. Inside, the nest has multiple horizontal tiers of combs where the eggs and larvae develop. On a side note, since most yellow jacket colonies don't overwinter, and since new queens always start a new nest, one way you can deter yellow jackets from nesting in places you don't want them, if that's something you're worried about, is to hang a decoy nest. They're actually available on Amazon, because what can't you get on Amazon? And they're inexpensive. You can get a three-pack for around $7. Alternatively, if you had a yellow jacket nest and the colony is gone, leaving it in place will keep them from returning to that particular spot. Now, the diet of an adult yellow jacket consists primarily of sugars and carbohydrates, like fruit, flower nectar, and tree sap. This is why they're important pollinators, and they're often found in large numbers on rotting fruit and spilled soda. But the larvae are fed on proteins from insects, meats, and fish. Workers collect and chew these foods to condition them before feeding them to the larvae. And this is why yellow jackets are often seen in trash cans and on your picnic lunch in the summertime. In fact, the food demands of a growing yellow jacket colony are so great that it's been estimated that more than two pounds of insects can be removed from a 2,000 square foot garden by yellow jackets. Since many of the insects that are preyed on by yellow jackets are considered pest species, yellow jackets are beneficial for farmers and gardeners, reducing the need for insecticides. And yes, yellow jackets can be aggressive, especially if you disturb their nest. Yellow jackets have lance-like stingers with small barbs and typically sting repeatedly, though occasionally a stinger becomes lodged and pulls free from the wasp's body like a honeybee's. Like most bee and wasp venoms, yellow jacket venom is primarily only dangerous to people who are either allergic or who get stung multiple times, which is a definite risk if a large colony is disturbed. Paper wasps are also social wasps, and like yellow jackets, the colony is started in the spring by a fertilized queen who overwintered. And also like yellow jackets, nests are built from wood fibers mixed with saliva. 
But unlike yellow jackets, a paper wasp colony is much smaller, averaging between 20 and 75 individuals. Paper wasp nests are characterized by open combs with cells for brood rearing and a petiole, or stalk, that attaches the nest to a branch or other structure. The shape of their nest is why they're sometimes called umbrella wasps. These are the nests that you often find hanging upside down under the eaves of your house, or in my case here at Dispatches HQ, on the frame of the garage door, under the patio umbrella, or inside the kid's treehouse. Interestingly, paper wasps secrete a chemical that repels ants, since ants will eat their eggs and larvae, and they spread that around the base of the petiole. Paper wasps are less aggressive than yellow jackets, and generally only attack to defend their nest or themselves. They feed on nectar and other insects, including caterpillars, flies, and beetle larvae, which, again, makes them not only pollinators, but also great natural pest control. So, while you may have to evict them from specific areas, like your garage door, maybe try to do it without killing them. Knocking the nest down when it's unoccupied is usually your best bet, although you might have to do this multiple times before they decide to choose a better location. While yellow jackets and paper wasps can be scary because they sting and gather in large numbers, many of the wasp species we have in North America are solitary, and solitary wasps very rarely sting. One of the largest native species of wasp in the United States is the cicada killer. Now, I talked about the cicada killer way back in episode one, but for those of you that missed it, let's review, shall we? Sometimes called a cicada hawk or a sand hornet, even though, as you now know, it's not a hornet, in appearance, the cicada killer wasp is, yeah, I'm not going to lie, it's pretty much nightmare fuel. They often freak people out because of their size. They can get up to two inches long. But, like I said, cicada killers are solitary. They don't group together in colonies like paper wasps or yellow jackets. While males are sometimes seen in groups battling each other for breeding rights, and females will sometimes share a burrow, cicada killers are not aggressive. Females only use their sting to paralyze their prey, not to defend their nest. And males, well, like most male bees and wasps, they don't even have a stinger. So, while females can sting you, the only reason they would is if you try to grab them, or if you accidentally stepped on one or somehow got it caught in your clothes. I said it before, but I'll say it again. I don't know about you, but no way am I touching a two-inch long wasp, even if it's not aggressive. So, really, in spite of the fearsome looks and name, unless you're a cicada, you don't have much to fear from the cicada killer wasp. Cicada killers are ground nesting. The female digs a burrow by dislodging soil with her jaws, then pushing it out with her hind legs, which have a special spine just for pushing dirt. The burrow will be about the size of a dime in diameter and 10 to 20 inches deep on average. After digging the burrow, the female wasp goes hunting for cicadas. She usually captures one in midair and delivers a sting to paralyze it. Then she'll carry it back to her burrow. Now, since the cicada can weigh twice what the wasp weighs, the wasps are often seen carrying their burden up a tree to gain altitude for the return flight. After returning with a cicada, the wasp will put it in a cell in the burrow and deposit an egg on it. Female cicada killers grow to be about twice as big as males, so male eggs are deposited on one cicada, but female eggs may have two or even three cicadas placed in the cell with them. I still find it fascinating that the wasp knows the sex of the egg they're laying. Once the eggs are deposited, the female closes the cell with dirt and digs a new cell. 
In total, she'll dig 10 or more cells. The eggs hatch in just a couple of days, and the larva consumes the cicada. Adult cicada killers feed on nectar and sap. They don't even eat cicadas. The larvae mature in about two weeks, build a cocoon, and spend the winter in the burrow at this stage of development. In the spring, they'll pupate, turning into adults that will emerge in late June or early July, shortly after the cicadas appear. Cicada killer wasps produce one generation a year, and adults don't overwinter, so just like their prey, once they emerge, they're on a tight schedule. Now, mud dauber is the common name given to a number of solitary wasp species. The name refers to the nests that are made by the female wasps, which consists of mud molded into place by the wasp mandibles. One species, the organ pipe mud dauber, builds nests in the shape of cylindrical tubes that resemble a pipe organ or a pan flute, usually on the horizontal face of walls, cliffs, caves, bridges, overhangs, or other structures. Other species create one, two, or sometimes three-celled, cigar-shaped masses that they attach in crevices, cracks, and corners. Still other mud dauber species refurbish the abandoned nests of other species, and some decide that the air conditioning drain tube in your truck is a good home, which causes the condensation to back up and destroy your AC motor. Now, if that sounds oddly specific, it's because that happened to me a couple years ago. But at least I'm not alone. According to Wikipedia, at least two small plane crashes have been attributed, at least in part, to mud daubers building nests in tubes on the outsides of aircraft. Fortunately, mud daubers are not normally aggressive, and I did not end up with a truck cab full of wasps. Stings from mud daubers are uncommon, but they can become aggressive if they're provoked. Now, one disadvantage to making nests like mud daubers do is that most, if not all, of the wasp's offspring are concentrated in one place, making them highly vulnerable to predation. Once a predator finds a nest, it can plunder it cell by cell. A variety of other species of parasitic wasp will attack mud dauber nests. They pirate both the provisions and the mud dauber larvae as food for their own offspring. Like most solitary wasps, mud daubers are parasitoid. Adults drink flower nectar, again making them pollinators, but they stock their nests with, drumroll please, spiders to serve as food for their offspring. And they're picky about their spiders. Mud daubers prefer particular kinds and sizes of spider. Instead of stocking a nest with one or two large spiders, mud daubers will cram as many as two dozen small spiders into a nest cell. To catch a spider, the wasp grabs it and stings it. As with most parasitoid venom, the venom doesn't kill the spider, but paralyzes it and preserves it so it can be transported to and stored in the nest cell until consumed by the larva. A mud dauber lays its egg on the spider, then seals it into the nest cell with a mud cap then builds another cell or even a new nest. The young spend the winter inside the nest, feeding on the store of stocked spiders. Now here at Dispatches HQ, I've identified at least two species of scolied wasp. That's S-C-O-L-I-I-D. The double-banded scolied wasp, a wasp that's black with two white bands on its abdomen, and the blue-winged scolii wasp, a black and reddish wasp with two yellow spots on its abdomen and, you guessed it, a blue tint to their wings. Worldwide, there's about 560 species of scolii wasp. 
Adults are seen on many wildflowers in late summer, but they're parasitoids of scarab beetle larvae, including Japanese beetles, which are an invasive pest. Female scoliides burrow into the ground in search of these larvae and then use their sting to paralyze them. Sometimes, but not always, they'll excavate a chamber and move the paralyzed beetle larvae into it before depositing an egg. Male scoliides patrol territories, ready to mate with females emerging from the ground. Again, these solitary wasps are not aggressive and will only sting in self-defense. Now, sometimes you see a wasp with what looks like a gigantic stinger, but really, that's just the wasp's ovipositor, the tube that it lays its eggs through. The group of wasps in the ichneumoid family are one of the most diverse groups of insects, with over 25,000 known species. The long-tailed giant ichneumon wasp, a species that lives in the eastern half of the United States, is notable for the length of its ovipositor. The body and the ovipositor together can be more than five inches long in females. But it's not just that the ovipositor is long, the structure of the ovipositor is fascinating. Okay, this is really cool. While it looks like a single long filament, it's actually three filaments. The outer two filaments are sheaths, which protect the ovipositor. During egg laying, they arc out to the side. The middle one is the actual ovipositor, and it's capable of drilling into wood. It's made of two parts with a cutting edge at the tip. The two parts interlock and slide against each other. Although it's very thin, the ovipositor, like I said, is a tube, and the egg that's being laid moves down a channel in its center. Long-tailed giant ichneumon wasps are beautifully colored. They're orange, yellow, and black in an intricate geometric pattern. And although they look big and scary, they're completely harmless to humans. They're parasitoids on the larvae of the pigeon horntail, which is another species of wasp that bore tunnels into decaying wood. Female ichneumon wasps are able to detect the horntail larvae through the bark, paralyze them, and lay their eggs on the living larvae. Like other parasitoid wasp larvae, ichneumon larvae hatch and within a couple of weeks will have consumed their host and pupated, emerging as adults the following summer. So with all this parasitism happening, host species of parasitoids have also evolved defenses. Many hosts hide in places that are inaccessible to the wasp. They may get rid of their frass, that's F-R-A-S-S, which is a great scrabble word that means body waste, and avoid plants that they've chewed on, as both of these can signal their presence to parasitoids hunting for a host. The eggs and cuticles of potential hosts are often thickened to help prevent the wasp's ovipositor or stinger from penetrating. Hosts might use evasion if they encounter an egg-laying parasitoid, like dropping off the plant they're on or twisting and thrashing to try and dislodge or kill the wasp, and even regurgitating onto the wasp to entangle it. The wriggling can sometimes help by causing the wasp to miss laying the egg on the host. Wriggling of the pupa can cause the wasp to lose its grip on the smooth, hard pupa or get tangled up and trapped in the silk strands of a cocoon. Some caterpillars even fight back, biting wasps that approach, and some even use hired muscle. Ants that are in a symbiotic relationship with caterpillars, aphids, or scale insects might fight to protect them from attack by the wasp. It's like Braveheart with insects. And that, my friends, is where we'll wrap things up for this episode. Thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the fascinating world of wasps. 
Be sure to leave a like and subscribe. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to support future episodes, please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. Tiers start at just $5 a month. You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode, feel free to send me an email. You can reach me at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.